Well, happy Resurrection Sunday, everyone. Thanks for joining us today for our 10.30 a.m. Resurrection Sunday service. Thanks for being flexible. I mean, typically this service is our 11 a.m. service, and we are shortening our services because we just know that on Easter Sunday there's going to be uh, quite a few more people that join us. So we are delighted that you are here with us today. If you are here today for the very first time, I just want to welcome you to New Life Midtown. It is a joy and it is an honor and a delight to have you guys. And I just say, you are welcome here. And I want you to make yourself feel right at home. Wherever you are in your journey, uh, in life or with God, we want you to know that this moment is not a moment that you are here by accident. We feel like you were uh, drawn in and compelled to be in this space together with us today. So we're here to celebrate the risen Christ, Jesus, the anointed one, and we're here also to celebrate you and to welcome you here into our space. Those of you who are joining us online, we welcome you. Thank you for taking the time to welcome this service into your place of occupation as well as your, your, your place of residence as we worship God today. God bless you and welcome to our 1030 a.m. service. Do we have any kids in the house today who might be going to kids' church, kindergarten through fifth grade? If we have any kindergarten through fifth grade, why don't you guys go ahead and stand, lift up your hands really high. Kids, we love you. Kids, we bless you. And we are so grateful that you are here with us. If you would, just lift your hand up really high in the back. Kids, you guys can be dismissed right now. Go and have a great, fun, powerful, powerful learning time celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. This morning, we were greeted by one of my youngest who knocked on the door. I opened up the door and he said, Daddy, he is risen from the dead. (laughs) And it was just such a sweet, innocent, precious moment to have your little seven-year-old with wide-eyed wonder say he is risen from the dead. What he was trying to say actually was he has risen indeed. Because we've been teaching him. He says, Daddy, tomorrow I'm going to go and every person I see, I'm going to say, Happy Easter. And I said, That's great, son. You can do that. I said, But also what I want you to think about is I want you to go to people and say, He has risen. And I want you to see if they say, He has risen indeed, right? So, in fact, we're going to do that together right now. If you're joining us for the first time, one of the things that we do here in this house is we have a moment in our service where there is an announcement and a proclamation where someone says up here in the front, he is risen. And the people all respond, he is risen indeed. Oh, man. Wow, that was so great. Don't tell first service, but that was so much better than first service. This is being on, this is, this is being captured video. They're going to know. We don't even have to do that. That was it, man. You nailed it. He is risen and he is risen indeed. And this is the cornerstone of our faith. This is why we do everything that we do. This is why we have hope for the future. This is why we gather together. This is why we immerse ourselves in the scripture and we love God and we love our neighbor because he is risen. And today we're going to talk about Some of the implications of this truth. Because he is risen, what does that mean for us? So let us pray and we'll jump into the word together. Father, thank you so much for what you are already doing in this place and in this space that is devoted to you. We are here in response to the invitation of the Holy Spirit. We are here because the Holy Spirit is shouting out to the world, come and hear this truth. You no longer have to live in fear. You no longer have to live in isolation. You no longer have to live under the oppression of the enemy because Jesus 
Christ is risen. And so today I pray, Holy Spirit, right now, every single one of us, would you just move up and down these aisles? Father, you know every one of our stories. You know what we're bringing into this place. You know what we're wrestling with internally and externally. You know the situation of life that we're living in right now. And I'm asking you, Holy Spirit of the living God, meet us here. Encounter us. Awaken us. Equip us. Form us. Shape us for what you have called us to do in the earth. And we pray these things by faith in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. We're going to begin our story today in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. There are four gospels. The gospels are simply the announcement of good news. And there are four followers of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All of these books are found at the beginning of what is known now as the New Testament. And the first book of the New Testament, written by a guy named Matthew, one of Jesus' followers, tells the story of when Jesus was born, tells the story of his life and his ministry, and tells the story of his death, a situation that we celebrated and reflected on just two days ago on Good Friday, the day where we pause and we remember that Jesus Christ took upon himself the sin and the shame and the guilt of all of the world. The entire guilt of sin of all humanity was literally placed upon Jesus. So we're going to pick up the story a little bit towards the end of the Jesus story, beginning in Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. After the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. This is the tomb that Jesus was placed in after he suffered public execution at the hands of the Romans. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the tomb, the stone, and sat on it. Now, I just love that visual in my head. You could have rolled back the tomb. You could have folded your arms and propped up yourself. You could have leaned against the stone, but no, 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 you, you didn't. You hopped up on top of that thing, folded your arms, crossed your legs, leaned back with a little bit of a swag, right? And said, yeah, I did that. This is so easy. This is simple. Sits down on the tomb. His appearance was like lightning, which is a little bit beyond my imagination. I mean, lightning's not typically something I want to sit there and gaze at, right? It was blinding. It was all strickening. His appearance was like lightning. And if you think about when you are traveling up and down the road, you know, Christy is from Oklahoma and they have huge lightning storms there. Anybody ever just been driving along and out of the blue, suddenly there's just lightning that strikes, right? You so that's something that you're anticipating. And this is this moment when the angel comes and his appearance is like that of lightning and his clothes were like white as snow. I want you to help get into the imagination of the visuals here. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. What does that mean? It's like they fainted. They flat out fainted. But who are these guards? They're soldiers. They're trained for battle. They spent their entire years like preparing for danger and imminent threat. And the moment it shows up, Like, it's one thing if you beat up an innocent guy like Jesus who's not defending himself. Yeah, you old big powerful soldiers you are. The first sight of an angel, you guys faint like you're dead. Seriously? These guys faint. And then the angel begins to speak to the women. He says, do not be afraid. 
Look at the contrast here. The trained military soldiers faint from fear, and the women are like, there. All the women, all the women just got to swell with pride. They're like, yeah, you didn't see the women fainting. The angel speaks to the women and says, do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. And here is the cornerstone verse of Resurrection Sunday. He is not here. You will not find the risen one amongst the dead. You will not find the resurrected Lord in places where you assume that he should be. Because he is risen, just like he said. Everything that he promised to you, it's real. Everything he promised to you, he's making good on it. Everything that he said that he would do, he's cashing in and he's saying, yes, everything that I said is true. And it's reality. And I love that, I love that verse right there. He is risen just as he said. If you don't believe me, come, come on in here. Take a look. Come and see the place where the Lord lay. And then he said to them, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and he is going on ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. It's done. Message finished. So then they depart from that place. The women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy. Notice that at the resurrection, a very natural human instinct of fear is being now overtaken and overcome with the excitement and the celebration and the anticipation of what could be. There is joy that is overtaking their fear. And they ran to tell his disciples, and on the way, suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, they clasped his feet, and they worshiped him. And then Jesus says to these guys the exact same thing that the angels said. Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and they will see me. This is the word of the Lord, friends. So what is happening right here? For those of you who are not very familiar with the story, let me help just for a second explain this to you. These are ladies whose lives have absolutely been transformed by the life and by the ministry of the Son of God. Jesus went throughout all the regions of Israel, Galilee, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all of the surrounding area, and he was coming to proclaim a couple of things. Number one, he is coming to proclaim the kingdom of God is here. Repent, think differently, change the way you're living, because the kingdom of God is here. He came to reveal who the Father is to the people that are around him. And as he was ministering amongst the people, he was teaching. The scriptures tell us that he was healing those that were sick, something that he has been doing from the beginning of the inauguration of the kingdom. Even to this day, the kingdom of God comes with healing. He was delivering people from the oppression of the enemy. He was feeding multitudes. He was reaching out to those that were displaced, those that were on the margins of society. Jesus was coming and essentially saying, let me show you who God is. Let me show you the God who comes near. Let me show you the God who loves you. Let me show you the God who comes to comfort you. Let me show you the God who comes to welcome you back home to his family. It's why Jesus came, amongst many reasons. This is why Jesus came. And these ladies that were at the tomb, these were ladies that were personally and deeply impacted and transformed by the life and by the ministry and by the teaching and the preaching of Jesus. These are ladies that in one moment before Jesus came, their lives were in shambles. They were broken. And Jesus came 
And with the gentle, gracious touch of the father, he puts their lives back together. And they decide that they're going to follow him. And they follow him all the way to the end. They follow him up to his bloody, brutal death. They are, strangely, they are some of the few that are at the place of resurrection. Strangely, Jesus has 12 men that were following him. 12 men that were in the inner circle of his life and his ministry. 12 men that he invested his life into. And it's these women who say, I want to be some of the first to be there on the morning that he declared he was going to be resurrected. Now, what's the tenor of the town of Jerusalem? Anybody have any idea? What's, what's the feel of the atmosphere in this hour? Jesus was a Jew. All of his followers up until this moment were people of Jewish descent. And the people of Israel were this small, small, tiny little nation that was literally overrun and overtaken by the military empire of Rome. And Jesus has literally now just been put to death. It's a public execution. It's a public execution taking place at the hands of military empire, and it's done in front of the world for them to see. And one of the reasons why this is, is because all of Jesus' followers are running around saying that he is the king of the Jews. Now, I've never been, I've never been a Roman emperor. Not in this life, not in my previous life, not in the life to come. But I would imagine that if I were a Roman emperor, I would say, well, if there's a small little fledgling group of people that have a king, let's just show them what a real king is about. And we're going to have to squash this resistance before it ever gains any traction. And so, again, they publicly murder this man. And I want you to think about this. These are, these are people, the disciples are people that have followed Jesus ardently and faithfully with their lives and even leading up unto the crucifixion of Jesus. Some of his closest friends are denying him. You guys know the story, right? There's a guy by the name of Peter, bold follower of Jesus, one of Jesus's most outspoken followers. And he tells Jesus, he goes, listen, man, no matter what happens to you, I'm with you to the end. No matter what happens to you, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never back down. And Jesus goes, okay, we'll, we'll see about that. And it just so happens that when Peter is being questioned by people as Jesus is being interrogated, as Jesus is being persecuted and tortured, Peter is out in this place of safety. And there are people asking him like, hey, aren't you? Aren't you with this guy? Like, no, no way. I don't even know who this guy is. Three times he does this. Why? Because he's afraid. He's afraid he does not want to be associated with this man. Because if I'm associated with him, what they're doing to you, they may do to me. John's account of the resurrection tells us that after Jesus has risen from the dead, he comes and he shows up to his disciples. And does anybody have any idea where these guys are at? They are locked up in a room. And the scripture emphatically tells us that the doors were locked because they were afraid. Like the... The conquest of Rome, the intimidating, impending nature, the doom of Rome, they just flexed their muscle. And all of these people who have lived in oppression are saying, listen, we don't, we don't want to mess with this. And they're locked away and they're hiding and they're afraid. And so when these ladies come, they're, they're coming at a huge risk to themselves. 
They don't know that there's going to be an angel. They don't know an angel's going to roll away a stone. They don't know what these guards are going to do. They don't know if these, if these soldiers are going to take these women into custody. They have no idea that's going to happen. And the first word that the angels and Jesus says to them is, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Now, we can understand this now looking backwards, and we go, of course, yeah, they were in a scenario where everything that was happening was laced with fear. But I'd like to propose that this wasn't just situational. I'd like to propose that fear is part of the universal condition of all of humanity. I'd like to propose that outside of God, that all we know, the air that we breathe is fear, whether we know it or not. That the orientation of our heart is an orientation of fear. That the culture that we grow up into is a culture of fear. That the way that we interact with people, that the way that we lead people, that the way that we respond to people, most of us don't even realize this, but they are interactions that are driven and they are motivated by fear. And where does that fear come from? Well, if we go to Genesis chapter 3, what we will find is that God creates this world without fear. He creates this world beautiful. He creates this world with safety. It's a safe world. It's a world where he gives mankind assignments, and they're not afraid to make mistakes. Well, what if I don't name all the animals right? Son, you're empowered. I believe in you. You have authority. I'm going to back you up. You're well able. It's a culture that is filled with blessing. The scripture tells us that when God creates mankind, he blesses them. That's not a culture of fear. Like when you live in a culture of blessing, you're not afraid. Son and, son and daughter, I bless you. You look just like me. You are made in my image. There's something unique about you that is set apart from every creature on the planet, and I bless you. My favor is upon you. My grace is upon you, and you are going to create culture with me. You're going to rule and lead and subdue the earth with me, and I bless you to do that. This is not a culture of fear. Relationally, Adam and Eve did not experience fear. Relationally, they experienced the closest level of intimacy that you can experience with God. There was beauty and there was safety and there was security and there was purity in their relationship with God. They weren't afraid of God. They weren't, they weren't suspicious of what God may or may not do. It's only when the enemy enters into the story and convinces Adam and Eve or the first man and the first woman. It's when the enemy tricks them and deceives them and manipulates them into this. This one singular thought. You can't trust God. You can't trust God. And in that moment, so deceitfully, what the enemy does is he begins to sow a seed of fear into the relationship of trust that the first man and the first woman have with God. Maybe we can't trust him. Maybe his motives aren't right. Maybe he is holding something back from us. Maybe he just wants to coerce us. Maybe there are better things out there for us. Maybe he's holding good things from us. You know what all that is? That entire cycle of psychological uh, reasoning, all of that is undergirded with a manipulative thought of fear. And so as they carry this conversation through in Genesis chapter 1 through 7, what we find is they decide to willfully disobey what God has asked them to do. God said, listen, you can have all of this. It's all yours. You're blessed. You can have all of this. I empower you. You can have all of this. 
I, my, 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 my kingdom is an abundant kingdom, and it is for you, and yet I reserve the right to put boundaries in your life, and I reserve the right to put boundaries in my kingdom. So for everything that you can enjoy, there is something I'm asking you. Don't touch it. Don't entertain it. Don't partake of it. And allow, allow, just trust me in this. Don't touch this. And when the enemy came and he violated that relationship of trust, they decided to willingly go against what God asked them to do. And in so doing, they touched the fruit from this tree. Now, let's take a look at the repercussions of that decision. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, Scripture tells us, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I want you to imagine this scenario. I, again, I, you, many of you have heard me describe it like this. I kind of feel like these guys took family walks together. And God shows up to the place that they would always begin their walk together. And he's looking around. He's going, where are those guys at? We were supposed to meet here. This is, where, this is what we do. We talk about our day. We talk about our progress. We talk about the highs of the day. We talk about the lows of the day. We dream about the future together. And God shows up, and Adam and Eve are not there. And why are they not there? Scripture is very, very clear. The man and the woman heard the sound of the Lord God, and now there's been a fundamental break in their relationship with God. There has been a foundational shift in the way that they perceive who God is. That surprisingly is transcending every good experience they've had with God up until this moment. This is how powerful sin is. This is how powerful this virus of fear that enters in, it actually begins to change the way we look at the good moments of our life. We, we don't see God clearly anymore. This is how powerful fear is. It enters into them and we find that God does not shift his position with Adam and Eve. They shift their position from God. And Adam, Adam actually fesses up. He owns this. And he says, they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And look at what Adam says in verse 9. The Lord God called to the man, where are you? Verse 10 says, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid. Everybody say, I was afraid. I was afraid. I was afraid because I was naked. Wait a minute. You've always been naked, dude. Right? But there was safety. There was security. There was righteousness. You were always naked before. You were transparent. You had nothing to hide. You had nothing to be ashamed of. You had no guilt. You were in good standing. You were in good relationship with me. Why, why are you shifting this? It's because... Fear enters into our lives when we shift our relational position with God. Fear is now a universal human condition, not because God has moved from us, but because we have moved from God. And what is fear exactly? Fear, very simply, is a heightened emotion that comes from a loss of security. When you're not anchored in something that is secure, it produces fear. I mean, we experience this physiologically. If you climb up onto something that's high and your footing beneath you is not as sturdy, your brain tells you this is not safe. You have relocated yourself from a place of security. You need to pay attention, right? So fear has entered into the heart of the human race 
because we have relocated ourselves from the security of our relationship with God. Here's the second aspect of fear. Fear comes when we have a sense of danger, when we have this threat of danger. And now we perpetually live in this threat of danger because we no longer live in the culture of the good family, right? Adam and Eve have removed themselves from that family, and they have located themselves in a new family. I probably wouldn't call it a family. I would call it a broke-down foster care institution where the person who's leading it is unjust and corrupt and mean and cruel and vicious. That's the enemy. And the enemy rules by fear. That's his tactic. The culture that the enemy tries to fuel is a culture of fear. And if he can get us into fear, he can control us. But I'm here to tell you good news, friends, that even though fear in so many ways of our lives takes so many different shapes and forms, I mean, think about this, think about this. We are afraid of so many things. We're afraid of rejection. We're afraid of failure. We're afraid of not measuring up. We're afraid of the future. We're afraid of getting sick. We're afraid of not making enough money. We're afraid of not getting the job promotion. We're afraid of taking risks. There are so many aspects of how this loss of security and this impending threat or danger, how it affects and shapes our lives. It affects the way that we interact with people. It affects the way that we lead. Don't you know that when you've got someone who's not leading in a healthy way, when you've got someone who's leading out of manipulation or threat or intimidation, you know where that comes from? It comes from fear. Like we like to look back and say, oh, no, you're on a power trip. No, power trips come from fear. We're afraid of not being, we're afraid of being controlled. We're afraid of not succeeding. We're afraid of not measuring up to all the standards that our father or our mother or people around us. We're afraid of not being loved. So what we do, we grasp on and we control and we threat and we bully and we manipulate. There are so many crazy things that we do. We compromise our convictions and our integrity because we're afraid. But the good news for all of us today, friends, is that the resurrection makes a life without fear possible. That the resurrection makes a life of fear possible. Why is it that the very first thing out of Jesus's mouth was do not be afraid. Friends, this wasn't just circumstantial. This wasn't just, oh, I just shocked you, and now I want you to not be afraid. No, Jesus is speaking into the core of the human existence, and there are two things that he is coming to address. Number one, he is coming to address our position of relationship with him. Jesus is saying this, your fear came because you removed yourself from the location of security of relationship with me. And here's what Jesus said. You can be brought back close again. And your security is not in what you've done. Your security is not in how good you are. Your security is not in how many righteous or religious things you're doing. Your security can be based on who I am and what I have done for you. That everything that I have done in my life, in my death, in my resurrection, in the giving of my spirit, it's already done. There's nothing for you to prove. You don't have to be a self-made man or woman anymore. I've done it all for you. It's done. It's finished. It's taken care of. Be free. You don't have to be afraid of where you stand with me. I've made it right. The second thing that Jesus comes to address is you no longer have to live under the territory of the one who reigns in fear. You can be welcomed back into my family. And friends, my family is not a family of coercion. 
My family is a family that drives fear out. This is why the resurrection matters. The resurrection matters because it makes a life without fear possible. The resurrection matters because it definitively says that Jesus is who Jesus says that he was. And if Jesus is who he says he was, then God is who he says he was. And God is not an angry lawgiver judge ready to pounce when we don't do things right. But God is a good father who pursues patiently, gently, graciously, and says, friends, you are always welcome at my table based on what I have done for you. In fact, look at this verse right here, if you would, in Romans chapter 8, verse 14. The scripture tells us that those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. They're the sons and daughters of God. What does that mean? It means that those who care about the things that God cares about have this sense of security that God is working in their lives. Those who are led by the Spirit of God, those that are paying attention to the desires of God, those people are definitively people that are in the family of God. But look at the next verse. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. Right? How does it say right here? The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. What does that word again mean? It means... That at one time, your entire orientation in life, everything that you view in life, from your health, to your family, to your marriage, to your friendships, to your recreational pursuits, to your job, to your vocation, to your education, that all of that is in some way grounded and rooted in fear and suspicion and independence and mistrust. And here's what he's saying, that when you choose to follow Christ, That when you choose to accept what God has done for you, that when you choose to believe in the power of the resurrected one, he is saying you receive a spirit, but it is not a spirit that locks you into fear. It is a spirit that empowers you. It is a spirit that is motivated by love. Look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. This is a powerful verse that has the ability to change everything in your life. The scripture tells us in 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love. There is no fear in love. When I make make a mistake with God, I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to run and hide. I don't have to create fig leaves. Do you know what fig leaves are? Fig leaves are things that we create in ourselves to prop us up, to protect us from the fear that we have that we are no longer right with God. Do you know what your fig leaf is? Your fig leaf is the crucified Christ. The blood of Jesus is now your fig leaf. The, The crucified Christ and the resurrected one is the one who covers you from mistakes that you make. There is no fear in love. There is absolutely no fear in love. Because perfect love drives out fear. If there is fear in your relationship somewhere in your life, if there is fear in your relationship with God and your interaction with God, friends, my proposition to you today very simply is this. Let the love of the resurrected one so fill your heart that it drives fear out of you. You don't have to fear the future. You don't have to fear rejection. You don't have to fear failure because perfect love drives out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. God is not in the business of punishing you. God is not looking to punish you. God is not eager. He's not excited to punish you. God is in the business of restoring you. He is in the business of redeeming you. He is in the business of nurturing you into a place where you can be everything that he has created and called you to be. He's in the business of flourishing you. He's in the business of blessing you. And that happens in relationship. It does not happen when you are distant 
from him. Finally, the resurrection matters because of this. The resurrection matters because all of the brokenness of our world that brings fear, the resurrection brings meaning to those things. It's not that God created those things. It's not that God caused those things. But listen, by our own decision, we have invited the brokenness of the world. We, we brought this on ourselves. But the resurrected Christ essentially says, listen, everything that has brought grief, everything that has brought sorrow, everything that has brought disappointment, everything that has brought loss, the, the injustice of the world, and there are some grossly unjust things that are happening in the world, locally, personally, and globally. And God is saying, because I have defeated death, because I have destroyed this barrier of death, I have the ability and I have the power and I have the desire to make everything that is broken in this world, whether it be in this life or the life to come, friends, I'm going to bring meaning to it. I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to restore it. And I will make it right. Jonathan, if you would come forward this morning, friends. I will... The good news very simply for us is this, is that Jesus is who he says he is. Consequently, God is who he says he is. He is a God of love, not of punishment. And that by the resurrection, the spirit of God is now at work to make broken things right. And that is our message. That is the message of the Christian faith. We're not a perfect people. We're a redeemed people. We're not a people that work legally or legalistically. We're a people who trust in the work of God. And we're a people that week in and week out, we come to this table as a moment of remembrance. It's a moment that we remember that because of the resurrection, we can live lives without fear. It's a moment that we remember that Jesus came out of faithful obedience to the Father to lay down his life as an innocent man, as a sinless man, to die by the hands of sinful people, to take upon himself the sin of all of humanity and to destroy the power of sin in himself right? Sin was that trump card that the enemy always had in his back pocket, right? If we ever tried to leave, he could always say, well, you can't do that because you're a sinful people. And Jesus has come to say, legally, I have now defeated and destroyed sin. And I'm just going to go ahead and take it further. I'm going to legally destroy and defeat the grave. I'm going to defeat death. You don't have to be afraid of death. And you don't have to be afraid of the enemy because he is an enemy that is without authority now. The resurrection allows us to live a life without fear. Friends, would you stand with us this morning? If you're here today and you would say, there is a little bit of fear that I have in God, friend, let me dispel that today. God loves you. And he sent his son for you. And today as we come to this table, we are declaring a couple of things. Number one, we're declaring that he was broken so you could be whole. So you could experience wholeness in every area of your life. And number two, his blood was shed. And a brutal torturous way. His blood was spilled. His blood was literally poured out and it was poured out to bring you forgiveness and to allow you to enter back in to a thriving, beautiful relationship with God. So we invite you to come to this table and take one of these little containers. It has bread on the top and has juice here in the bottom. You can exit on your left up here and receive, go back around to the right, enter back into your seats and we'll all take this together. And, and friends, just because we have a bunch of people here, if, if you do have a mask, I encourage you to wear those as you come up here to receive the body and the blood of Christ. Let us come to the table.
family and friends as we take this wafer in our hand. I personally like to open my hand and hold this out. It's just a physical posture that says, God, every good thing that I've received has been given to me by you. And I receive this good gift of salvation that has come in Christ. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread with his closest friends and he broke it. And if you would, just kind of break this little wafer in your hand. And this is signifying that the body of Christ was literally physically broken for the wholeness of humanity. He said, I will be broken so that you can be whole. And today, as we receive this, we receive the wholeness of God into ourselves. Friends, take and eat. Thank you, Lord. And with this cup, we pull back this layer. Jesus said this on the night that he was betrayed. This is the cup of the new covenant. There's a new agreement that I'm making with you. And the agreement is simply this. I'm going to love you. I'm going to pursue you. And if you receive it, you're welcome into my family and we're going to walk together. It's a great agreement. The agreement is not, hey, you earn it. And maybe we'll see by contingency and condition if you can measure up. That's, that's, that's the old agreement. The new agreement is, I'm going to lay down my life and I am going to remove your sin and your shame and your guilt from you. And if you will choose to walk with me, I will walk with you and I will put my spirit in you and it will be a glorious future together. So friends, we're going to drink to this new agreement, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Let us receive. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we'd like to sing a song of thanksgiving here. We invite you to join us as Jonathan leads. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father. from the dead, the same spirit who raised Christ from the dead. May the Holy Spirit bless you and anoint you and empower you today. May every assignment and lie and deceptive device of the enemy to bring fear into your lives. We just bring it under the power of the resurrection. We bring it into the light of the truth of who Jesus is. And we just declare that the resurrection makes a life without fear possible for you. May every stronghold of fear in your life, in your family, and in your family line be broken by the power of the resurrected Christ. Now go forth into the world in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great Sunday afternoon.